For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. At the end of April last year, my wife and I decided to move from Calgary, Alberta, to Duncan, BC. We both just finished getting our Bachelor of Music degrees, and we're about to get married as well. Originally, we had planned to start our lives in Calgary, but we couldn't find any jobs or a place to live. So we took it as a sign that maybe God had some other plans for us and headed west to my wife's hometown. It's been almost a year that we've lived here together, and I've really grown to love this place and call it my home. I had, of course, visited Vancouver Island many times before moving here, but there were so many things I didn't fully realize about this place until I got here. The first is that everything closes quite early, and Google Maps almost never has the hours right for things. There's been many times where on my way home from work, um, I've wanted to stop in, get an evening coffee, so that I can power through my studies, but inevitably, almost every time, Starbucks is closed. The other thing is that I thought winter would be easier here than in the prairies, because it's not as cold, but in fact, winter here is maybe even harder, because it's so dark and so rainy. The last thing that I didn't know about this place, and maybe didn't appreciate about where I had lived before, is you can't see very far in any direction. Usually, although beautiful, your view is blocked by either a hill or a mountain or a tree. Since my wife, have moved, my wife and I have moved here, we've had the pleasure of going on some really nice hikes, though. We've gone to Mount Suhalem, Mount Erskine on Salt Spring on our honeymoon. That was a really nice hike. And most recently, we went to Stony Hill for my wife's birthday. And on these hikes, I found that by getting to the top, by getting to these high places, some of that claustrophobic feeling I had went away. It's a place of greater vision. I didn't really understand how everything fit together on the island, where everything was, but when I got up in these places, I could sort of finally see where everything was. And as I've been reflecting on our passage for today, the Transfiguration, these images have been coming to my mind a lot, and the significance of places of great vision and height. And I think you'll see, as we dive into this story together, that height and that closeness to God, that area of vision is really, really significant. But before we read on, let us pray. Dear Lord, as we spend a few moments together in this day, I pray that your spirit would be present in our lives and be present in our hearts. Um, I pray that it would be your words flowing through me, not my own God. And I pray um, that as we engage with one another in this word, um, that you would reveal your glory to us and that we would be comforted and inspired. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I said, the passage for us today is the Transfiguration. And while the story takes place um, in a couple of the Gospels, um, in the book of Matthew, it's found in chapter 17, starting at verse 1. So I'll read from there. It says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I shall make three tabernacles here, 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So as I said, the story takes place in a couple of the Gospels. All of the Synoptic Gospels, actually, that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And in all of those places, the transfiguration occurs following the same two events. The first being Peter's confession of Christ. And in this passage, Jesus is asking the disciples some interesting questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, in boldness, gives this awesome answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds by establishing Peter as the rock on which his church will be built. But then the narrative changes. A shift takes place. And we go from glory to Jesus explaining to his disciples that he will suffer and be killed. And then it goes on even further to say that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think it's important to clarify that the cross for us is not necessarily the same thing as it was for the disciples. I think when we see the cross, we picture the symbol that we see in churches or maybe the symbol of Jesus' miraculous resurrection. But for the disciples, at that time, the cross is not that same symbol. It's a symbol of suffering, of humiliation, shame, and death. But here we see the transfiguration responds to this. It responds to this dark and confusing and challenging narrative with an answer. And as we go through that answer, it's about eight verses or so, it packs a lot of meaning. There's a lot going on in this, um, in this, in this place. The first thing we see is that Jesus only takes a few with him, that being Peter and James and John, his brother. Interestingly, these three disciples that he chooses are the same ones that we see later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Between the garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives and the top of the high mountain at the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are the select few given the privilege, but also the responsibility of being the closest to Jesus. He is with them, and they are with him at both the highest and lowest moments. Continuing on in verse 1, we read that he led them up on a high mountain. Now, interestingly, there is some historical debate over which actual mountain this story takes place on. The traditional answer is Mount Tabor. But there's also some people that think that Mount Hermon might be a more, you know, sort of another possible site because Mount Hermon is really close to some of the other places Um, that the narrative runs through as it goes along. But in either case, the mountain is significant. It's a place of height, of great vision. Um, And we see throughout both, not just the book of Matthew, but throughout the whole Bible, that mountains are significant. They're a place where God does stuff and says stuff and reveals things. Even just in Matthew, we start with the Sermon on the Mount. This great sermon, this great declaration that Jesus gives. 
And then here we see the transfiguration as well. But then continuing, we also see Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill on which Jesus is crucified. Reading on, we see that he was transfigured before them. Now, this word transfigured means transformed in appearance. And we see how that's described. It says, his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Continuing on, it says that Moses and Elijah were with him. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that these are just really important figures within the Jewish tradition. Moses and Elijah um, are also closely tied with mountains themselves. Even furthermore, they're understood to be figures that ascended into heaven, further capturing the divinity and heavenliness of this moment. But perhaps the most significant and important um, thing to make note of is that Moses and Elijah are representations of the Old Testament law and prophecy. And the transfiguration does this really interesting thing by creating this continuity between these Old Testament figures and Jesus himself. They're literally in conversation with one another, in dialogue with each other. But let's turn our attention to the the disciples. We see Peter in in this great moment of mystery and divinity and probably terror. He feels a response is required of him. And he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Before Peter stands three of these giants of his faith, three amazing figures. And by setting up tabernacles, your translation might say tents or huts, he's tapping into a long Jewish tradition of marking meeting places between heaven and earth, or God and humankind. So it makes sense why he's trying to do this. He's trying to mark the significance of this event, of these meeting, of these three people. But he misses something in his, in, his, uh, in his desire to do that. And God steps in and corrects him quite swiftly. It says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then it adds this at the end. Listen to him. Here we see Jesus elevated. He's already elevated in his divine status, in his heavenly stature. But not only that, he's elevated above these other figures. So Peter, in his desire to make three tabernacles, misses Jesus' own authority. Misses his placement above these other other, um, figures. And in response to this, the disciples are terrified. It says, The disciples heard this, fell face down to the ground. And we're terrified. But Jesus responds in a really, really interesting way. It says, And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they see no one except Jesus, further cementing his authority and status. But also, not only that, his intimacy, his connection with the disciples. And, um, In my study preparing for this message, I came across something that I thought was really interesting. Um, Donald Hagner, he's a biblical scholar and and he wrote a commentary for this passage. He points out that the word used for touched in this story is the same word that's often used in conjunction or connected to healing. 
In Jesus' touch and his coming to them, his being real with them, he takes away their fear and he heals them in some sense. And if you've been following along with us in your Bible, you might have noticed that in the headings leading up to this and in the passage right after, we're seeing a bit of a balance between two ideas. Starting with Peter's confession. In that section, we see these statements of glory, of profound glory. Jesus is described as the Christ and the Son of God, and Peter described as the rock of the church. But then, as we've said, we see the narrative change. We see the narrative shift from glory to suffering and death. And furthermore, Peter from the rock to the stumbling block for Jesus. But then we return to glory. Jesus is, um, Jesus is marked as divine, as glorious, and elevated above. But the story doesn't stop there. If we keep reading on, starting in verse 9, we see that they descend back down the mountain. They sort of return to reality in some sense. Jesus commands them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The reason they're asking this is in Malachi, it's prophesied that Elijah comes before the Son of Man and before the day of the Lord. And for them, they've just seen Elijah. They think, surely we must be telling people about this in order for what God has commanded to come. But Jesus corrects them, challenges them to reinterpret and reimagine the way they understand Scripture. He says, But I say to you, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So again, we see this prophesying of suffering return and the confusion of the disciples. This balance between glory and suffering, I think is especially challenging for Peter, or at least he's engaging with it in a very real way. Peter's often the one of the disciples that takes the risks, asks the questions, and, engage with, and engages with Jesus in dialogue. And I think in that same way, as Peter engages and wrestles with, this thing, with these things, we do as well. We see in the story the amazing privilege of following closely with Jesus. He is revealing things that are to come, and they see Jesus in divine glory. But both in the Garden of Gethsemane, and in the statements about discipleship and death and suffering, we see the cost as well. I think for me, what's encouraging about this, though, is that although we suffer and we experience God's glory, we know that Jesus has gone before us and does exactly that same thing with us. He is both divine glory and suffering servant. He's the one at the top of the mountain and he, but he also comes to them, touches them, and heals them. He's everything the disciples need to continue the work of God's kingdom. He teaches them, he guides them, he heals them, he restores them from fear. But he also challenges them to rethink the way that they understand God in the Bible. So for us, maybe we're in that same messy balance. We're trying to understand what following God looks like, but... We're encountering a lot of suffering. I think that it's really important here to recognize that the transfiguration takes place in the midst of this narrative. 
It's right in between these statements about suffering. God is revealing things to the disciples so they have the strength and the wisdom and knowledge to continue forward walking alongside Jesus. Only by establishing Jesus' authority will they be able to understand that they have the strength and they have what they need to continue on. To put it simply, and in hopes to sort of summarize the things that we've been talking about today, Jesus is with us in everything and is uniquely equipped to do so. By establishing himself as both the suffering servant and the divine son of God, he is capable of being with us in everything we walk through. On the cross, Jesus not only suffers for us, but he also suffers with us. And not only is he glorious in his divine image, but he also reveals that glory to us as we are close to him. So as we end our time together, my prayer for us is that at some point this week, we might find time to get out on a high place and see if God has anything to reveal to us. See if, and as we descend, is there a challenge? Is there something he's trying to speak to us that'll prepare us for what is to come? Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that you reveal things to us and challenge us and walk alongside us in all that we do. I pray that as we're walking today, we would feel a sense of your presence and feel that healing touch that comes when we are afraid. And I pray that in all we do, we would know that we are loved by you and that you are the authority over all. In Jesus' name, amen.